Exodus chapter 20. We are getting into our first study on the Ten Commandments. We'll be looking at the first three commandments tonight. And then we'll be going to the New Testament to look at the purpose of the law. And I think it's important whenever you study uh, God's law, whenever you look at the commandments, um, it's important to understand both the Old and New Covenants. Because it's easy to look at the Old Testament and to look at the Old Covenant and become um, disenfranchised, uh, to become almost, in some ways, you could be condemned if you don't understand the Old and the New Covenants. The Old Covenant was under the Mosaic Law, and it was given at Mount Sinai. We saw that in Exodus 19. God came down in great fire and smoke. He spoke to Moses through the thunderings of his voice, He told Moses to put a barrier around the mountain. He said, beware, lest anybody cross through that, they will die. And it was a radical picture of the holiness and the purity of our God. The writer of Hebrews, commenting on the scene of Mount Sinai, concluded in Hebrews 12.29 by saying, Our God is a consuming fire. He dwells in 1 Timothy 6 in unapproachable light. As a matter of fact, when Paul the Apostle saw Jesus on the road to Damascus, he said that he was brighter than the noonday sun. That means that Jesus appeared brighter than the sun shining at its greatest strength at midday. And so we know that the glory of God is beyond the sun, beyond anything that we could imagine. He dwells in unapproachable light. And he said, look, if someone tries to pass through that barrier... You better tell the people to take a bath. You better tell them to wash their clothes. You better tell them to consecrate themselves because I'm coming down on Mount Horeb, the holy mount of God, Mount Sinai, and I'm coming in all my radiance and brilliance. And we couldn't, couldn't say all because if it was all, everybody would have died that day. But God came down, pillar of fire, smoke, uh, and, and the holiness of God is there. And we compared the Mount Sinai to the Mount Zion or the mountain, as the writer of Hebrews calls it, the Mount of Mercy. And uh, that the good news is that there are two mountains. You will never be able to ascend Mount Sinai because in our own flesh, Isaiah 64, 6 makes it clear, our own righteous deeds are like filthy rags before the Lord. It doesn't matter what good, quote unquote, we've done because there is no one good. In Luke 18, and we'll be studying Luke 18 in our Friday night Bible study at the farm if you want to join us. We'll be looking at Luke 18 and a few things that happened in the chapter before that. There was a young ruler who came to Jesus. And he said, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And you remember Jesus said, why do you call me good? There is no one good but God. And so the law, the purpose of the law ultimately was to show us that there is no one who can ascend the hill of God. There is no one that has pure hands and a clean heart. As a matter of fact, Jeremiah says that our hearts are deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can understand it? We are desperately sick on the inside. We are sick with the SIN virus. We're sick with the SIN virus. 100% deadly, 100% of the time. We cannot cure ourselves. We cannot ascend the hill of God. James 2.10 says if you break one law, you're guilty of breaking the whole law. And what James means by that is by breaking one of the commandments, you break the essence of all the commandments. Summed up in two things. Jesus said all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you are to love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands hang all all the law and the prophets. Now, none of us do that. None of us love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not 100% of the time. And none of us love our neighbor as ourselves. Because if we did, he'd be living in our house and we'd have an apartment. So anyway, so tonight, um, we need to look at the law in the context of the Old and New Covenants. The Old Covenant is spiritual. The law is good and holy. The problem is not with the law. The problem is with us. The law is like a mirror. It shows us our weaknesses. It shows us our sinfulness. And Jesus, expounding on the law, said the law even judges the inward thoughts and the intents of the heart. 
And so it exposes us for who we really are. The eyes of the Lord go to and fro upon the earth, looking out for the good and the evil. God sees everything. Hebrews 4, the writer of Hebrews says, The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight. For everything is naked and open before the one to whom we must give an account. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. It is very important for us to understand that God is utterly holy. He is magnificent. He is far beyond what we could even imagine. And tonight, as we look at the law, we're going to look at God's requirements for Israel. But then we're going to look at the ultimate purpose of the law. The law cannot make you righteous before God. The law is to drive you to God's remedy. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't teach the moral demands of the law in churches, because that would be wrong as well. Thou shalt not murder still applies. You are not to tell lies. You are not to covet. But yet, we know we cannot keep the law. And therefore, Jesus came to fulfill the law. He came to live the perfect life that we could not live and to die. Christ, Romans 10.4, is the end of righteousness or the end of the law for righteousness to all who believe. He is the one who fulfilled what we could not do. And so tonight, as we look at these first three commandments in Exodus 20, I want you to do, uh, think of the Old and New Covenants. If you really want to get a handle on the Old and New Covenants, the best place to go is probably the, the book of Hebrews, where the book of Hebrews talks about the superiority of Jesus to the angels, to Moses and so forth and so on, to the priests, and you'll get a full picture of it. But tonight in Exodus 20, notice that the Lord uh, God spoke all these words, uh, Exodus 20 verse 1, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now the first thing God does in giving, preceding the giving of the Ten Commandments is He points out what He did in the deliverance of of Israel. He says, in essence, don't forget that I'm your God and I'm the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of, you might want to mark this in verse 2, the house of slavery. One of the best motivations for holy living tonight is not to be under the law because you're not under law. The best motivation is to remember that God delivered you from the house of slavery. He delivered you from Egypt. Egypt is a type of the world and so we know that by his powerful hand he called us out the word for church ecclesia the called out ones he called us out of the world and to himself and so this is the important thing that we must understand and god sets the table for the law saying i'm the lord your god who brought you out of the land of egypt out of the house of slavery don't you ever forget what i've done for you how quickly we forget But our highest motivation tonight to uh, walk in the ways of the Lord is to remember what the Lord's done for us, to be grateful, to walk in gratitude. We can't do uh, 10, 20, 50, or even 100 things on a list to earn righteousness before God. But what we can do, because we have righteousness from God, is to live in gratitude to God. And when you make a mistake, when you err, then to quickly repent of it and, and... Walk in the mercy and rejoice in the mercy that God's given to you and move forward in your life. Now, God says, number one, the first of the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other small g gods before me. Commandment number one, you are to have no other gods before me. Now, we mentioned uh, in previous studies that the people who... um, surrounded Israel, especially as they came into the land of Canaan, there were many uh, pagan societies, many societies that had multiple gods. But I guess for a contemporary culture, when you think about other gods before God, a god can be anything. Uh, And of course, if you look at what God said here, He said in verse uh, 3 of Exodus 20, No other gods before me. That word before there is a Hebrew word, A-L, and it means beside me, above me, in addition to me, together with me, beyond me, above me, has all these meetings, over me, 
over against me, have no other gods, nothing in your life that you put above me, next to me, nothing that would take the place of me or come beside me. There's, not, there's no one that you can compare to God. There's no one else who delivered you from the house of slavery but God. And therefore you are to honor Him as first and foremost in your life. You are to have no other gods besides me, says the Lord. Uh, flip over to Exodus 22. If you look at verse 20, there was a penalty in the Old Testament for worshiping other gods. Here's what it is. Exodus 22.20 He who sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be utterly destroyed. (laughs) How do you like that one? He who sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone, Exodus 22.20 shall be utterly destroyed. If you turn to Deuteronomy. So you got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, talking about the first commandment. No other gods before me. Deuteronomy 6, verse 10. And this is the danger of forgetfulness, of turning to other gods. And we can certainly apply this to ourselves. Deuteronomy six ten. Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give to you, great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of all good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant. And you shall eat and be satisfied, verse 12, Deuteronomy 6. Then watch yourself. Lest you forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. There it is again. You shall fear only the Lord your God and you shall worship him and swear by his name. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the peoples who surround you. For the Lord your God in the midst of you is a jealous God. Otherwise the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you and he will wipe you off the face of the earth. God is not playing games when it comes to having other gods before him. He wants exclusive worship and he is a jealous God. And of course, he compared Israel's disobedience and uh, going to other gods as spiritual harlotry. If you turn to the book of Joshua, uh, just go past Deuteronomy and you'll get to the book of Joshua. Go to Joshua 24. The new leader now, uh, after Moses passed the baton was Joshua Joshua 24:14 Notice what Joshua says Joshua 24:14 Now therefore fear the Lord Joshua 24:14 and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt remember that's where they came from from all that idolatry and serve the Lord And if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. Joshua 24, 15. This is a verse I I actually have embedded in concrete in my backyard, at least a portion of it. Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house... We will serve the Lord. Now, some of you may even have a plaque in your home, Joshua 24, 15. As for me and my house. But Joshua said that particular phrase in the context of an idolatrous nation. And of of an idolatrous surroundings. Now, I have to tell you that if you post one of those things, you put it in your little concrete, Joshua 24, 15, you put it in a plaque. I've got it in both at my house. You're making a statement. And your statement is this. We live in a world where many people serve many different gods. Now, most people shave their god every morning. And they learn about how they're they're a god and and they really just don't know it. And Dr. Martin used to say, uh, just not to leave the ladies out or they curl her hair every morning. Most people, when you really break it down, and the essence of Satanism, by the way, is to worship self. Uh, Anton LaVey, when he wrote the Satanic Bible, was not talking about a belief in a literal Satan. What he believed in was serving yourself. The high holy day for a Satanist is your own birthday. 
He wanted to throw off all what he believed were the uh, terrible chains of Christianity. And he wanted to be free. Free to enjoy all those things that he thought would bring joy to him and the others. And so that's the worship largely of today. It's a worship of self. I mentioned the Oprah Winfrey show where they uh, have... uh, allotted the secret and the secret ultimately comes down to the same thing just think positively about yourself and positive vibes will come back to you we could talk about Shirley MacLaine we can talk about uh, many other things but uh, God says you know what you need to make up your mind who are you going to keyword at the end of the verse serve as for me and my house <coughs> excuse me we will serve the Lord. Have you made up your mind that that's the case for you? Have you made up your mind that for you and your house, you will serve the Lord? Sometimes we we can easily say we've made up our mind. It's another thing to put it into practice. And the people answered and said, verse 16, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is He who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now they repeat what happened from the house of bondage and who did these great signs in our sight and preserved us through all the way in which we went and among all the peoples through whose midst we passed. And the Lord drove out from before us all the peoples, even the Amorites, who lived in the land. We also will serve the Lord for He is our God. Now, we'd like to say that the children of Israel kept that promise, but we know that time in and time out, here's what would happen to them. They would prosper, they would be in uh, plenty, and they would begin to have their head turned to other gods. And God would bring a repeated cycle of judgment that would either come directly from Him, that would come via other nations, to bring them back to a place of repentance. And there are principles for us, even though we're living in the new covenant, we often do the same things. We get prosperous, things begin to click in our business, Uh, maybe we have a new relationship, maybe there's some form of excitement in our lives, it could be even a new hobby. And oftentimes that thing will turn our heads away from the Lord. And the Lord will have to remind us, wasn't I the one who brought you out of the house of slavery? And I think we ought to be able to share with our kids, maybe not all the grimy details of where we were before we came to Christ, but at least to tell them, the reason I serve the Lord is the Lord saved me. The Lord rescued me from the mire of my sin. The only reason that we are who we are today, son, daughter, is because of the Lord, because of His strong hand. In the book of Jeremiah, if you'd like to turn there, which you're going to have to now pass up Psalms and Proverbs and Isaiah, you get to Jeremiah 7. Jeremiah 7. If you've ever read through the book of Jeremiah, it is a strong, strong rebuke of the children of Israel. And uh, if you look at Jeremiah 7, verse 3, notice what the Lord says. Jeremiah 7, 3. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Jeremiah 7, 4. Do not trust in deceptive words, saying, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly practice justice between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, nor nor walk, you might want to note it, after other gods to your own ruin, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Behold, you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and offer sacrifices to Baal or Baal, and walk after other gods that you have not known? Then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered! We are delivered! That you may do all these abominations. God says, in other words, you are out there in the world, you're committing these adulterous acts, you're murdering, you're shedding innocent blood, and then you go into the house of God and say, I am delivered! I'm free! Right? The problem is, is that all week long you commit these abominations, says God, 
Then you come into my house and you expect me just to wink at your sin. And the fact that you could sacrifice to Baal and the fact that you could cheat your neighbor. And you see, while it is true that we live under a a new covenant, um, it is also true that people haven't changed. That without the Spirit of God giving us the power to live the Christian life, we have a bent towards doing these things that are wrong. These things that are not pleasing in the sight of God. Now, if you turn back to the book of Exodus, so God says, number one, I want you to remember what I did for you. Don't forget and don't serve other gods because after all, the other gods didn't deliver you and after all, second point, the other gods are not real. And so therefore, you shall serve me. Now, the second commandment links to the first commandment. And it says this, commandment number two, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. Key, you shall not worship them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, repetition now, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. But showing loving kindness, verse 6, to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Now the second commandment is, you shall not make for yourself an idol, a likeness. Now, people have uh, gone to extremes with this particular thing. Uh, People have decided that with this you cannot have any art in your home. Uh, Don't have those paintings up on the wall uh, behind you because... They depict the sea and the sky and therefore you can't have art in your home. That is not the point of the command. The point of the command is not not to draw a picture of the sky or the sea. The point of the command is not to have anything in your life to which you bow before in worship that replaces God or is put alongside God. This is probably why we don't have any religious relics left from the past. I think God knows what we would have done with them. And of course, even today, people say, I've got a piece of the cross or the face of the Virgin Mary appeared on this garage door or in my breakfast sandwich or whatever it is. And I don't know, you know, people want to start worshiping. People are looking for a figure. They're looking for something to worship. Even when you go to the Holy Land. Uh, I have to tell you that there are uh, guys all over the place that are quick to want to sell you anything that they can make some money on because they think that you know you're just gonna uh, you're just gonna uh, eat it up because you're in that uh, holy land. Well, a lot of the sites that you go to in the holy land, they don't know for sure if they are the actual sites. Number one, and uh, people even t- have talked about when you go into the tomb. Uh, which they believe is the tomb of Jesus, how people have had the Jerusalem experience. Um, As a matter of fact, my mother-in-law was dating a gentleman and he was in Israel many years ago. And uh, people were walking into the uh, what is believed to be the tomb of Jesus, which, by the way, could quite possibly be. The location seems to be uh, pretty right on. But anyway... He, he said he was next in line to go into the tomb and a man walked in there and fell to his knees, began weeping and would not be removed from the tomb. And uh, he said he took a close look at the man and the man was David Koresh. And if you remember who David Koresh was, he claimed to be Jesus and of course led a cult in Waco, Texas and ended up uh, not in good shape. And so... Um, what we do know is that we have a tendency to want to grab onto something. We have a tendency to want to have uh, something uh, materially speaking to worship. Growing up in Roman Catholicism, this was a big thing. Uh, statues all over the church and, and uh, people would often bow down to them. I remember my grandmother had a statue of Jesus in her bedroom. And she used to kneel down before that statue and the rosary and, and all of these things that... Uh, take place in Catholicism. And and the things, um, you know, you can have a statue of something and it can be quite harmless, but if you have a statue of something to which you have to go before, to pray before that, and that thing is your link, if you will, it's it's not of God. It's not something that God wants. There's an old funny story about a, a Hispanic boy. He uh, lives in Mexico and he's growing up in a, a Catholic home and they're a very poor family. And so they have a typical Roman Catholic house where there's a, a separate room where there's candles, an altar, and a statue to the Virgin Mary. And so 
the boy's friends all have skateboards and he really wants a skateboard. His birthday's coming up. And so he says, Mom and Dad, I really want a skateboard. I really want a skateboard. And he prays for that skateboard. And he goes into the room and asks for the skateboard where the altar and the candles are. There's a statue of the Virgin Mary in there. He prays and prays. His birthday comes and goes. He has no skateboard. The family's poor. And so Christmas is coming and he's thinking, well, I can get a skateboard. He asks his parents. He goes into the room with the altar, the candles, statue of the Virgin Mary. prays, oh Lord, Christmas is coming and I really want a skateboard. All my buddies have the skateboard. Well, they're poor and Christmas comes and goes and there's no skateboard. So he decides to take drastic measures. He goes into the room with the altar, candle, statue of the Virgin Mary and grabs the statue of the Virgin Mary. Runs out of the room and goes to another place in the house where he can't be seen comes back into the room without the statue. Looks at the altar and says, God, if you ever want to see your mother again, I want a skateboard. (laughs) Well, (laughs) that's just a funny story. What relevance it has to this is you are not to make an idol. You don't need to be in a church to pray. You don't need to be in a confessional to confess your sins. You don't have to say, you know what, i got to drive over to 268 North Lincoln at the corner of Lincoln and Railroad so I can pray. No, you can pray anywhere you want. You can pray at the ocean. You can pray at the golf course. Just make sure it's not Sunday morning between 10 and noon. Right? (laughs) No legalism here, though. See, that's not the way God works. You don't need some magic carpet to lean on. You don't need some statue to kiss, some candle to light. God is spirit. And Jesus said to the woman at the well, it's not on that mountain, Mount Gerizim, that you think is the holy place. And it's not even here. For God is seeking people who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. He wants an inner transformation. He doesn't want it just to be when you show up where the statue is. He doesn't want any representation of Him that takes the place of who He is. For the glory of God is all over the place. The whole earth is full of His glory. He doesn't need a building when the temple was being built. Was God one to just dwell in the temple? Did He, just, did he need a building to abide in? No. He didn't need the building. The people needed the building to remind them what was important. To have a place to sacrifice. God didn't need a place to live. The whole universe is His handiwork. He doesn't need a building to abide in. Turn to Psalm 115 for a second. Psalm 115. Now, have you ever run into a person who's really caught up with idols? Um... Maybe you've been a person like that. Maybe you grew up in a system that was filled with idolatry. Notice Psalm 115. We've read a lot of the Psalms earlier, but this one is insightful regarding lifeless idols. It says this in Psalm 115, verse 1. Psalm 115, 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to thy name give glory because of thy loving kindness, because of thy truth. Why should the nation say, where now is their God? Verse 3, but our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. Their idols, by contrast, are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. And those who make them will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them. Turn to Isaiah 40, if you would. Isaiah 40. It's a few books over. You remember the uh, movie, The Ten Commandments, Cecil B. DeMille's version? Do you remember when Pharaoh's firstborn son is dead and he stands before uh, an idol that is black and it's got its hands out and it's got a hawk's head? Do you remember that? And he sets his dead son on this idol and he cries out to this idol for the life of his son. Restore the life of my boy. And he's crying out to the idol. And his wife walks up, seeing the limp dead son laying there. And he says, she says, why do you bother? She says, that thing can't answer you. That thing's made of stone. 
It's silly to cry out. That boy's not going to wake up by crying out to that piece of rock that you made. That would be like standing before the, uh, where the, where's the, what's the hill where the faces of the president are? What's it called? Mount Rushmore. That might be like standing before that and yelling into those faces that are carved into the hill. Save America! Save America! You can yell for the next 50 years. They're not doing nothing because they were carved out of the side of a mountain. They are not alive. You see, this is the silliness of idol worship. Isaiah 40, look at verse 18. God says, To whom then will you liken God? Isaiah 40, 18. Or what likeness will you compare with him? As for the idol, a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who is too improvised for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot. He seeks it out for himself, a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. He's working hard. Do you not know, verse 21, or have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the vault of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they planted, scarcely have they sown, scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them and they wither and the storm carries them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me that I should be his equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number, he calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? Do you not know and have you not heard? The everlasting God, the the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary. And to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. To whom will you liken me? What could you make that would look like me? You can't. So don't even bother. I am beyond anything that you could create. So worship me in spirit and in truth. Look up on high and look at the stars. And I'm the one who made those. And I named them all. And I put them there so that not one of them is missing. There's nothing that you can compare me to, says God. But people do so often, don't they? If you turn to the book of Acts for a moment, Acts chapter 14, the Apostle Paul is out there doing his thing. And people decide that because Paul has done a miracle in their company, along with Barnabas, that they should worship them. And so in Acts 14, when the multitudes, verse 11, saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus. These are the gods of Greek mythology. And Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest Zeus, uh, the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, he thought his god had arrived, bought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. Hey, Zeus has arrived! Let's sacrifice! But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they said, cool, they think we're gods. No, I'm just kidding. They (laughs) tore their robes and rushed into into the crowd crying out and saying, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you. 
and preach the gospel to you in order that you should turn from these vain, worthless things to a living God. You see, the idols are dead. By contrast, God is alive. Don't serve these vain, lifeless, dead things that you made with your hands, says Paul. And don't worship us, please. Anybody ever wants to worship you, say, please don't. We preach the gospel to you in order that you should turn from these vain things to the living or a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. If you turn to Acts, excuse me, 19, Acts 19, as the apostle continues now to move uh, through this part of the world, he has come to Ephesus. And there was a God in Ephesus that they worshipped and they had a temple. And it was the temple to the goddess Diana. Her Greek name was Artemis. She was a multi-breasted god who was supposed to be a goddess of fertility. And so they thought that all of their blessings came from Artemis. As a matter of fact, we have archaeological discoveries of this god. You might, if you've ever read an archaeology book, you can see the god Diana, Roman name, Artemis, Greek name. And so she is quite popular. And Paul's been going around Ephesus and he's been preaching to the the people about uh, the god who made the heaven and the earth and everything. And the people have all these uh, false gods and... In verse 18 of Acts 19, many uh, who believed kept coming and they were disclosing their practices. Many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of all once they realized who the true God was. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. And so the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. And so if you skip down, And about uh, that time, verse 23, there arose no small disturbance concerning the way or the gospel of Jesus Christ for a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. And then he, these he gathered, verse 25, together with the workmen of similar trades and said, men, you know that our prosperity depends on this business. And you see in here not, uh, that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, notice how Paul was moving around. This Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Oh, terrible Paul. And not only is there danger that this trade of ours falls into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship should even be dethroned from her magnificence. Oh, he makes quite a speech here. And when they heard this, they were filled with rage and they began crying out saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And the city was filled with confusion. And they rushed with one accord into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. Of course, these two fellows hanging out with the Apostle Paul, uh, boy, they probably were promised a rose garden. Hey, come and join the ministry team of the Apostle Paul and you'll have your best life now. Oh, all of a sudden, what's happening? They're being dragged into a theater. Being being, uh, associated with Paul was a dangerous thing. And when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, the disciples would not let him. And also some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him repeatedly and urged him not to venture into the theater. So then some were shouting one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion and the majority did not know for what cause they had all come together. Crowd mentality here, mob mentality. And some of the crowd concluded it was Alexander since the Jews had put him forward and having motion with his hand, Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, a single outcry arose from all as they shouted for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And they said it over and over and over again. And after quieting the multitude, the town clerk said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there after all who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the image which fell down from heaven. 
Oh, don't you know that this is how the whole thing started. The image of Artemis fell from heaven and she is the one who watches over our city and gives us all of our blessings. And we make little silver shrines to her and we sell them for a profit. But now this Paul saying that gods made with hands out of silver are no gods at all. He's upsetting the apple cart. He's telling us that our idols are false and we want this Paul out of here. You see, when you begin to share the gospel with people, there's two ways that they might react. And we see both here. Some people who are practicing witchcraft and idolatry brought their books and burned them and said, man, I want no more of that. I've seen demons working in my life. I've been messing around with idolatry. I've heard the message of the true and living God burn it. And I've told some people, if you got stuff in your house connected to that garbage or stuff you need to burn, burn it. I'll confess, I've literally burned some things from my past. But other people who were in the idol-making business, Paul was bad for business. And so he upset those people because they were into their idol worship and you see what happens. There's a big time riot. Now, for the sake of time, I'm going to cut to the chase quickly and I'm only going to cover two of the Ten Commandments because that's the way it goes. (laughs) But here's the deal. There's one other thing that bugs people in this commandment. And it says, that uh, if if we go back to Deuteronomy for a second, or excuse me, Exodus for a second, I want to show you this because this is a teaching afoot where people believe that this lends credence to the idea of ancestral curses. Let me show it to you. Exodus 20. God talks about not making an idol. Exodus 20, verse 5. You shall not worship or serve them. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Notice uh, middle of verse 5. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Now, the idea of ancestral curses has been birthed from this particular text and uh, likely a few others. And here's the idea. If you mess with witchcraft, you mess with things of the occult, you mess with things that have to do with things of practices that are idolatrous, well, then there's a curse on you and that curse is passed down from generation to generation. So people think, if things are going bad in my life, if there's some demonic activity in my life, then perhaps I have an ancestral curse on me. And that ancestral curse has come from my parents who mess with this stuff and therefore come to my life. Now what does the writer, ultimately the Holy Spirit, but here Moses mean when he says that God will visit the iniquity of the fathers, iniquity means sin or transgression, to the third and fourth generation of those, notice, and you might want to mark this, who hate him. Is there such a thing as an ancestral curse? No. No. You are not going to receive a curse because your parents were in the occult. However, it is possible for you to be impacted by their occult practices. We've heard stories where people have testified that someone became possessed in a home where there was occult uh, stuff going on, seances and the like, and someone was just sitting there and there could be a demon who could come in if that person is not born again of the Lord Jesus Christ. So certainly there's a danger. But there is no such thing in Scripture as someone paying the price in the sense of God's judgment for the sins of another. And I'm just going to give you, for the sake of time, some key passages. Ezekiel 18, write this down, verses 1 through 32. Ezekiel 18, verses 1 through 32. And just to cut to the chase, I'll read Ezekiel 18:20. The person who sins will die. <clears throat> the son will not bear the punishment of the father's iniquity nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity the righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself well then what does God mean if someone doesn't have to pay for the sins of their father in the sense of a curse or judgment from God what does he mean well I think what he means is this and this is my uh, best conclusion from this text I think 
that all of us, if we have had parents who have messed in occult practices, idolatry, or for that matter, just not knowing God or being in a cult, we feel the ripple effect of that. It is visited on us in the sense that we inherit that family. We are born into that family and we are going to be impacted by that family. And chances are that we might practice the same practices of our parents. Uh, We all know that that's a very likely possibility that if our parents believe something, even if it is outright false, we may hold to that same thing. I remember one time they were interviewing a couple on the Christian Research Institute Bible Answer Man program many years ago. Uh, Both had been involved in Scientology. Well, the one man said that he got involved in Scientology because his dad was a Scientologist. And he said this, We loved old dad, but we thought what he believed was a little strange. And his dad used to take what was called and is called in Scientology an e-meter. This is a device to measure, it's almost like a lie detector device. It measures, you know, your, your body sweat and stuff like that. And he would put the kids, attach them to this e-meter, and he would do... Uh, this kind of counseling on them to make them go into past life experiences so that they could get rid of their, are you ready for this, negative engrams. Now your negative engrams in Scientology are all your bad past life experiences that you've gone through that happened in all these millions of lives you lived before. And so you go on the e-meter with a counselor, see if you can go back and find out about these negative engrams to reach a state of clear. And when you get to the state of clear, the state of clear means that you've erased the chalkboard, to put it simply, of all the negative past life experiences of your life. And now you can be well. Kirstie Alley, who is now now seen on Weight Watchers commercials, uh, claimed that she overcame a cocaine addiction by going through the counseling sessions offered by Scientology. Could well be. But she had to go into her alleged past lives to experience this freedom. Well, this guy says anyway that uh, we thought dad's beliefs were a little strange, but he, this guy grew up in Scientology and was in it until I think he was in his 20s just simply because of the beliefs of dad. And so I think that there's some truth in this particular verse to that. And we also have to contrast this with understanding the Ezekiel passage, no son will pay for the sins of his father, but he will be impacted by them. And especially if he repeats the sins of his father, then he'll be responsible. But notice the contrast in verse 6. God shows loving kindness to thousands and to those who love and keep his commandments. To those who love me and keep my commandments. Now those are the first two. The first two biggies, they are, number one, you shall have no other gods before me. And number two, don't make an idol. Now, should we put those into practice today? Yes. Are we under the law today? No. But do those principles still apply? Are those laws still good for us? Should we not have other gods before the God of the Bible? Yes. Have you ever put another God, small g, before the God of the Bible? I don't care what it looks like. I don't care if it has four wheels and a nice red paint job. It could be a relationship, it could be an automobile, it could be anything that you put above the God of the Bible. For many Americans, you don't have to look past their pocketbook. Their God is money. Or whatever it might be. Have you ever done that before? Have you broken the first commandment? Boy, there's a bunch of pure, consecrated people. You've all broken it, haven't you? Have you, have you all had an idol in your life? Have you put something before the God of the Bible and basically worshipped it before you worshipped Him? Yeah. We all have done that. So now, since we've broken those two laws, are we in trouble with God? Yes, we are. As a matter of fact, if we fall in one part of the law, James 2.10, I said at the beginning of this, we are guilty of breaking all of it. Are you... In your sinfulness, because we've all broken God's laws, going to to ascend Mount Sinai? Are you going to come into the holy presence of a God who says He is a consuming fire in your unclean state? No. That's the bad news. I'm going to end this message with the good news now. So what was the purpose of the law? And I'm going to give you little tidbits 
as we go through, but let me just read these to you because we're right at 8.30. Why the law then, says Paul, Galatians 3.19, it was added because of transgressions having been ordained through angels, remember the angels were up on Sinai, by the agency of a mediator until the seed should come to whom the promise has been made. And would you just turn to Galatians 2 um, and let me show you Again, there's a lot more New Testament scriptures I like to share, but I'll save those for another time. The law, Paul would say, is our schoolmaster to lead us or drive us to Christ. But let me leave you with this tonight. Look at Galatians chapter 2 in your New Testament. Start at verse 16. Galatians 2.16. Remember the backdrop quickly. Judaizing heresy happening in the Church of Galatia, people coming around saying, you must be circumcised and keep the food laws to be saved. That's the issue. Now look at Paul. Galatians 2.16, nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but contrast through what? Faith in Christ Jesus. Even when we, even we uh, have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be or may be justified by Faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law shall how many? No flesh be justified. But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves also have been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. Verse 18. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, this is the Mosaic law now, I died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. You see what Paul is saying? I died to the law, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me and through me. Do you want to live a successful Christian life? Then don't try to do it in your flesh. Don't keep saying, I'm good enough, I'm strong enough, and I can ascend the hill. I know many have failed before me, but I'm going to jump the barrier. I'm putting on one of them heat suits, and I'm ascending the hill. I know there's many crispy critters on the hillside, still smoking, but I'm the man. Matter of fact, I jumped seven feet six in high school and maybe if I get a running start, I'm going up. Right? Paul says, man, the commandment came and I died. It killed me. I took a look at that law and I looked at Mount Sinai and I said, oh, I am undone. I am an evil, wicked man at the core of my being. I thought the law had to do with outward righteousness, like the clothes I wore on Saturday and the foods I didn't eat on Friday. And then I saw God on top of Sinai. And I said, what? You mean if I don't eat the meatball on Friday, I can ascend the hill of the Lord? No. I'm not going to ascend that hill. Somebody else walked the hill for me, the Son of God. He walked the hill of Calvary, went to a cross of shame that he didn't deserve, lived the perfect life that I could not live, ascended the hill of the Lord, died a humiliating, painful death, and there as he's on the cross, taking the wrath of God, he's dying in our stead. For Christ, the righteous one, died for us, the unrighteous ones. That's how you ascend the hill of the Lord. You follow right behind Jesus. And you say, it is no longer I who live. 
Christ lives in me and through me. If you want to know the key to the Christian life, here it is. Let Jesus live it for you. So, Pastor Michael, I've heard that before. That sounds so simple and easy to say, but man, it's Wednesday, right? (laughs) And you don't know about, and you don't know about, and you don't know about. And if you just knew that person that I've got to deal with, and if you just saw this situation, and if you just knew what's going on in here and here or there, everywhere, right? Hey, I can give you my list. You want my list? You want to sit in my chair for a week? Oh, I don't know if you would. (laughs) Some weeks it's pretty cool. Other weeks, not so. (laughs) Kind of bumpy. But here's the deal. And this is the key to the whole thing. For through the law I died to the law that I might what? Live to God. It's not about the law anymore, you guys. Should you murder people? Absolutely not. Should you covet? No. Should you steal things that don't belong to you? No. But have you done it before? Yes. Now, hopefully you haven't murdered anybody. (laughs) I don't think my son will mind me telling this story, but... uh, I was sharing, um, and this is my final thought. <laughs> I was sharing about using the Ten Commandments and witnessing to people. And uh, the folks at Way of the Master go through this uh, series of questions that you can use. And uh, you, know, you, you, you use the Ten Commandments to show people their sinfulness so that they can see their need for Christ. And so you say to somebody, yeah, have you ever told a lie? And, of course, everybody says, yes. And you say, what does that make you? They say, a liar. Ever stole anything that didn't belong to you? It doesn't matter what the value is. Yeah. When I was a kid, most people say, when I was a kid, what does that make you? A thief. Have you ever lusted in your heart after a, another person? Most people say, yes, I've done that before. Ever coveted stuff that doesn't belong to you? Ever dishonored your parents? Everybody says, yeah, 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 yeah. So my son heard about this uh, particular approach. And so he was going through these series of questions. You ever told a lie? And I was acting like I was a guy from the South or something. Yeah, I told a lie. <laughs> ever coveted anything? Yeah, I've done that. Ever dishonored your parents? Sure, I've done that. He said, you ever murdered anybody? I said, no, but I'm thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> he moved back a little bit. <laughs> You want to ascend the hill of the Lord? You want a walk that is successful and peaceful and filled with the joy of God? Then you need the fruit of the Spirit. It will not come from you. You can't generate it. You can't manufacture it. You are not a manufacturer. You are simply a distributor. When you realize that, you'll walk a little lighter You won't be looking at that hill and saying, I'm not good enough. No, you're not good enough. That's why the Lord walked the hill for you. That's why he walked the Via Della Rosa, the way of suffering, for you. So that you are acceptable before God because you're in Christ. And if you're in Christ, there is no condemnation. You mentioned Romans 8, Oscar, for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ tonight... You are not condemned. You are not going to be judged for your sin. You are the beloved of God. And you are on your way to heaven. You are forgiven and loved by God. He did for you what you cannot do for yourself. And so, as we conclude, what do we do with that? We say, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, Lord. And in gratitude, we live in obedience and purity and holiness by the grace of God. And when you skin your knee or stub your toe and you're bound to do it, then you quickly repent and you get back in the race. And you say, God, would you be the wind? And by the way, that song stole it. Would you be the wind beneath my wings? I will mount up with wings like eagles when God is breathing his life consistently into me. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your people here tonight. Thank you for the psalms that were shared earlier, the preciousness of your word. Thank you for the good news of the grace of God found in Jesus Christ, in his very person, 
and work, death and resurrection. Thank you tonight, Father, for your love for us. Thank you for our children. Thank you for our homes. Thank you for our blessings, all that we possess, Lord. Our spouses, our children. We want to praise you tonight for Chris and wish him a happy birthday. We pray you'll bless his life. We pray, Father, tonight that uh, just as we enjoy all the good things and realize that you have paid the price that we can never pay, Jesus, that we are going to be standing before God uh, in holiness and righteousness, unaccusable before the Father because of the work of the Holy Son. All we can say, Lord, is thank you so much. Thank you for forgiving, forgiving us of breaking your laws. Thank you for paying the total price for our sin so that you no longer are counting our sins against us. And so, Lord, as we leave from this place, we want to leave with an attitude of gratitude. We want to know that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That we are righteous before God because the righteousness of Jesus Christ has been put to our account simply by our faith in Him. Help us, Lord, to remember that It is about repentance, too. We need to tell people they need to repent and trust in Jesus Christ. Thank you that you caused us to do that and we have new life in you. And now we can celebrate that new life. We, indeed, have ascended the hill of God. We are seated with Christ Jesus in heavenly places. And, Lord, we are looking forward to that day when we see our sweet Savior face to face. Until that time comes, Lord, may we live in a way that reflects who we are. May we indeed say to people, No, indeed, I am a sinner like you, but I have trusted in Jesus who went to the cross for me, who loved me that much. And Lord, may we remember that when we're tempted to fall, when we're tempted to give in, when we're tempted to sin, may we go back and say, Lord, let me not forget and fill me with your spirit and live your life through me. I surrender tonight. We love you, Lord. We thank you, our God. You are great and awesome. You are a great and mighty God. And we love you. And we just want to say that tonight. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.